When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then, brought, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman, when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and, and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Michelle. Well, good morning, everybody. We are continuing our series on Philippians, striving together for the gospel, and we're starting the series with a few messages out of the book of Acts that um, help us set the context for the book of Philippians. The readings and sermons that we've been doing out of Acts are from the portion in Acts uh, where they're in the city of, of Philippi. And so we looked at um, Lydia, the uh, wealthy businesswoman that first came to Christ as a result of their ministry in Philippi. Last week, Lawrence looked at um, the work of the apostles 
in, in casting out the demon uh, in, that was uh, enslaving the young slave girl. Um, and today we look at this, this episode with the jailer. And I want to address today the concern of opposition about us as Christians speaking the Word of God. We won't always have opposition when we seek to share the gospel with other people. Like in Lydia's case, there was no opposition there. But there will be opposition when we try to speak the gospel to people. And we see the example of that here in this passage. And so I want to start out by just asking ourselves, how does fear of opposition affect our willingness to speak the word? What kind of opposition do we face? Do we fear a loss of friendships? Do we have a fear of being perceived as an evangelical? A few years ago, um, Gabe Lyons came out with a book that explained um, how the majority of, of the people in the United States think about evangelical Christians. And there are several ways that they categorize them. And one of them is that the evangelical Christians are just trying to get people saved and that they're not really interested in sincere relationships. Another one is that they're homophobic or too politically right-wing or judgmental. And so there's this caricature of evangelical Christians who are trying to share the faith and, and the perception um, that that's true can be opposing to us. We don't want people to lop us into this category or to this, this stereotype. We see here that there's a concern possibly for physical pain. And while, while, while we don't see that too often in our context, this certainly is, in the, is the case in other countries throughout the world where they don't have the legal protections against persecution as we do. And there could be a concern for a loss of influence or reputation in our work spheres or in our neighborhoods or, or what have you. We could be concerned about losing the, 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 the um, good name that we have with those around us in regard to who we are. And so these concerns are real. They're not imaginary. Um, they are all a part of what goes into what we think about and how people are going to respond to us when we, when we concern ourselves with sharing the gospel with them. Now, sometimes these things can happen to us. We could lose our reputation. We could offend others. We could be completely insincere, all right? And we're just trying to check off a box and have a transactional relationship with people uh, simply because we're foolish and we are being insincere, okay? So we can approach relationships and evangelism completely foolishly and blow it and cause all of these consequences to occur. But sometimes we can approach it correctly. We develop sincere relationships. We pray and love and sacrifice. And in speaking the word of God, we still get these reactions. One of the things that, uh, as I was preparing for this message today, there's a, a Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church. You know, the, the same kind of dynamic existed back then as exists now. There are these perceptions of Christians that aren't correct. They believe that Christians 
engaged in incest and cannibalism in their, quote, love feasts. That's what they called the Lord's Supper celebrations in the early church, love feasts. Well, what does that sound like to you? That sounds cannibalistic and incestuous, especially when you're referring to other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so they had, they believed that they were atheists because they didn't worship many gods, but just had one God. And so there was a lot of characterizations about Christians that weren't true. Uh, but the problem is, is that there were a lot of people within the Christian churches that did live foolish lives, that dishonored the name of God, and that hurt the reputation of the Christians. And so Christianity, and well, those of us who call ourselves Christians and who are concerned with sharing the gospel with those in the world have always had this challenge. We don't want to come off as this perceived um, foolish, insincere person, and yet those types of people exist. And so sincere Christians who want to love their neighbors and want to share the gospel with people have always had to battle um, this misconception about who they are when they seek to share the gospel with people. And so that's why it is so critical that our, that our lives um, are, are reflecting the worthiness of the gospel as we approach evangelism because people have to see our lives and see that we are indeed loving, see that we are indeed sincere, see that we are not being hypocritical. And so, one again, one of the goals of this series, we've got two primary goals. One of them, you know, as Paul says in, in, in chapter 1 of verse 27 of Philippians, he says, when I come, I want to make sure that you're standing firm living lives worthy of the gospel, being of one spirit, one mind, one person for the progress of the gospel. So we have a, a goal to strengthen the, the passion and the desire that we have to live lives of holiness because they are going to be reflecting the gospel. And the other goal is that we increasingly grow in our boldness and clarity when we speak the gospel to people. And so we've got lives that need to back up our speech. And as Michael Green says, he says, Christianity is enshrined in the life, but is proclaimed by the lips. If there is a failure in either respect, the gospel cannot be communicated. So the passage today records efforts to evangelize in the face of significant opposition. So if we just look at this passage, where, are, where, are the, where is the opposition coming from? Well, we see that there's, first of all, demonic activity. Paul looked, or excuse me, Lawrence looked last week at, at Paul and Silas, and as they were sharing the gospel in the city of Philippi, um, this slave girl who was under the control of demonic spirits and her masters uh, literally followed them around. And at, one, and at one point, after a great length of time, the text says, Paul got annoyed by this. She was following them around, and, and she was proclaiming something that could only have come from either a believer or someone who was being influenced by demonic forces because the, she knew something about them that not, anybody, not everybody else knew. She says, these men are proclaiming to you the way of the God most high. And the text isn't clear 
and I haven't listened to the sermon from last week yet, Lauren, so, and I'm sure you, you talked on this, but the text isn't clear on why it took Paul so long to save this girl. It's not clear. But it seemed to me, it seems to me that she could have been some sort of a distraction that Paul ultimately got annoyed with. Anyway, there, there is demonic activity around them, and it is not something that Paul sees as a positive thing. We also see people who see that the gospel is a threat to their income. So these, these men were making a living off of this young girl who was demonically possessed because she was able to prophesy and to tell. She was a modern-day fortune teller. And so they were earning income off this because they would charge people for her to tell their fortunes. And once Paul released her from demonic possession, she could no longer tell people's fortunes. She no longer had insight into the spiritual world. And they obviously could no longer charge. And so they got really upset. And in their anger and in their concern for their loss of income... They go to the politicians, and the politicians aren't really concerned about the truth of the matter. They're interested in mob control and pleasing the mob. And the, the people whose, whose incomes were threatened went and said, hey, they're stirring up racial tension. And they exploited the racial tension that existed between the, the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews. And they said, hey, they're, they're proclaiming things and telling us to practice things that are illegal. And so that's what scared the politicians. And so the politicians got the police and then used violence against Paul and against Silas and against the gospel. See, the gospel in this context um, exposed the insecurities and fears of people. And whenever we pro pro proclaim the gospel to people, it is going to expose insecurities and fears. And we can see that a lot of times when people's insecurities and fears are exposed, um, they lash out in anger and they are impulsive and they use violence. And that's what we see here. And that's one of the things that we grow fearful of as we seek to communicate the gospel to people. And then we see that there's also these conditions that Paul and Silas suffered in the jails that they certainly had experienced before and certainly would have been fearful of to some degree of being isolated in a, in a dark, stinky, wet jail cell in the, in the middle of the prison. It was the most isolated place and they had their at least their hands, maybe their feet, but they were in the stocks, so they couldn't move. They couldn't go anywhere. And so they knew those conditions. They knew those conditions. And certainly, though, all of those things, because Paul had experienced them before, all of those things rested in their minds as, as things that could oppose their efforts to proclaim the gospel. Now, again, not all of evangelism will cause opposition. We're not going to experience these types of things every, every time we try to share the faith. And again, in this country, it's unlikely at this point that we're going to experience any of these types of things. Maybe some violence. Maybe somebody will punch you in the mouth. All right? 
But the things that we need to be concerned about, like break, breaking relationships, loss of reputation, far less intense than these from a physical standpoint, uh, but no less significance in terms of the fear that they generate. Now, opposition has its fruit. And it seems like, it seems like Paul used the, the possibility of suffering and opposition to his advantage, just like Jesus. The story begins, really, when the, the, the politicians are fearful of, of them creating a, a, a mob greater riots and more violence in their city. And so the politicians get fearful of this and, and they throw them in the jail after beating them severely. All right? But then the story ends. The story ends with Paul saying, after the politicians quietly come to the jail cell, it's the next night, and, and some scholars believe, and, and, and I had a hunch that this was the case, and I think it is. Why would the next day the politicians want to release Paul and Silas after an earthquake? Did they interpret the earthquake as some sort of a supernatural message from, the, from a, a, a God or the God that what they did in jailing these people was, was something that they should not have done? So they got up immediately the next day and went quietly to the jail cells and said, hey, you better release these guys. But then Paul says, release us? After, after you have illegally condemned and beaten us as Roman citizens. And so you have these, this story is kind of bookended by those two events. And you have to ask yourself the question, why didn't Paul bring up the fact that he was a Roman citizen earlier. Like, I'm sure he would have had the chance. Why didn't he bring it up earlier to save himself from beaten, being beaten and being jailed? And it seems like Paul used the suffering and the threat of being jailed and beaten and sitting at least one night in a dark, dank, stinky, probably disease-ridden place, he used that to his advantage, believing that through the suffering and the opposition, not, any, not because of anything that he did, other than proclaim the gospel, but it seems like he intentionally chose to endure the suffering in the face of opposition, believing that somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit would use that to produce fruit for the gospel and to bring people to believe in Jesus Christ. So the jailer is now responsible for Paul and Silas after being th after he, he followed his orders. He threw them in the most secure place. The ESV reads um, that the politicians told the jailer to put them safely in jail. The word should be securely. The intent isn't that they would be well taken care of. The intent is that they would be in a place where there's no way they could uh, be released or, or that they could escape or probably so that the mob wouldn't get to them there. 
And so the jailer is now responsible for these men. They've been, they've been severely beaten, and so they're quite bloody and bruised and hurting. But they put them in these stocks and put them in the most isolated place. Now, I've, ta- I've had one close friend who has spent significant time in, uh, in federal jail, federal prison. And the first time I went to visit him, um, he said this, and, and Seth and Tim and Joel and John could give you many more stories, I'm sure. But he, he told me this. He said, you know what? He said, George, the, the, the most enslaved people in this prison are not the prisoners. It's the jailers. It's the jailers. These, they, he dis, and he described, there were a few of them that stood out as different, but he said, by and large, um, the, the, the men taking care of us in here are, are angry and resentful and bitter and angry toward us, and they seem to be having a more miserable experience than we are. Now, I don't know if that's what we should read into the jailer here, but he doesn't seem to be uh, a kind man. And I'm sure that that condition, in fact, I know that that condition is reality across the board in jails and prisons across this nation, probably around the world. It's, it, you're, you're dealing with hard people. You're, you're dealing with um, the place where the, the, the sins of our world are sent. And there's little hope for redemption in those contexts. In fact, what our experience shows is that most people come out worse off than when they went in. And so the jailer, this is his livelihood. This is what he does all day, every day. And so he's a hardened man. He's an enslaved man. But he puts these men in jail, and there's there's an earthquake. But prior to the earthquake... All of the other prisoners and, the, and the, the, the staff at the jail have been hearing Paul and Silas in the midst of their suffering as a consequence of opposition, proclaiming and singing and worshiping and praying. They are, they are rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ, sincerely. They're not, they're not mustering up all they can have. They are they are singing and praying and worshiping with joy that is coming from their hearts and what they're feeling. It would have been remarkable. But then, but then something else remarkable happens. There's an earthquake and all the jail doors open up and the jailer runs in. He's going to commit suicide because he, he thinks that everybody has, has, will have escaped and then he's going to be held responsible for all these escapees. So he says, I'm just going to kill myself now to save myself from the dishonor that comes with me abdicating my responsibilities. And Paul says, no, wait, we're all here. So not only did Paul and Silas engage in what would have been extremely weird and strange behavior in, in truly and sincerely worshiping God in the face of suffering because of opposition, he got, he, they didn't escape, and he got the rest of the prisoners to stay in their places as well. The, the influence that Paul and Silas had through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
because of their worshiping and praying in the face of suffering and opposition, that seems like Paul intentionally got himself into. I, th I think Paul had a, a realization and a, and a theological understanding that, that God is going to move through the suffering that we endure. Because isn't, isn't that what the gospel is? Jesus faced the shame that was before him and endured it and came out on the other side because of his desire to experience joy. Romans 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Paul believed that there would be greater joy and greater fruit on the other side of his suffering. It seemed to be an intentional, strategic point that he followed. And that changed the heart of this jailer. And probably changed, although the text doesn't indicate other than the fact that they didn't leave either, it probably changed the heart of every other person in that jail. They didn't leave. They didn't leave. What if we loved those in our lives so much that we would intentionally and knowingly suffer even at their hands, so that they could hear and see the truth and the love of the gospel? What if, what if the very thing that we're afraid of in, our, in, in, in concern about the opposition, what if the very thing that we're afraid of and the suffering that comes from opposition is, is the means through which God is going to save those that we love and want to share the gospel with? Isn't that a strange thing? But if you think about it, that is exactly what the gospel is. It is exactly what Jesus knew to be true. I am going to suffer at the hands of the people that I love so that on the other side, they repent because they see my love, they see my kindness, and they come to know me. That is the strategy of God. Um, but it's never, I'll be honest, it's never been my strategy. I've never thought of it in this way until I saw this passage. Because I think Paul could have brought up earlier, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve a fair trial if you want to condemn me for something. But he brought it up afterwards. He brought it up afterwards. It would also reflect how much importance we put on the gospel, that it is indeed good news, that it, that it is in, indeed so good that we're willing to suffer at the hands of those we love and care for in order that they would possibly believe it. And see, what is required on the other end of our witness after experiencing suffering, even at the hands of those that we care about, what we're responsible then to do is to turn the other cheek, to love them even more. And that may be the moment of conversion. Not earlier when we shared the gospel with them and, and, and brought up their sin and their need for a savior. That, that's what we communicated, but maybe the point of conversion in the face of opposition is when they see our love that we show to them 
after they've heard us. That's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. Now, um, one of the things that comes up when we start thinking about and talking about evangelism um, is, is the, the guilt that necessarily comes upon us because all of our, and I, I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, um, certainly is the case for me, we, we all probably recognize that we could be more faithful. And when we start talking about this, and again, this is maybe a third goal, a third goal of this series would be to, to move us into a place where we're faithful with being bold with the gospel, but not out of a place of guilt. Where it is more something that is a part of our lifestyle. Part of what our relationships are about with those in the world that don't know Jesus. Because guilt can't sustain our efforts. I mean, if you're kind of sitting here and we've had, this is our fourth message on this, our need to be increasingly bold and our, our need to be clear and winsome in our communication of the gospel. Um, my guess is, is that at least some of you have been feeling a little guilty about your efforts. And again, I think that's maybe the case for all of us. But guilt can't sustain our efforts. Guilt will not sustain our efforts in evangelism. Guilt will not sustain our efforts in our marriages, with our kids, in anything that we're about. If we are going into it from the perspective of guilt to overcome this feeling of shame, it's not going to work. It's not going to be sustainable, and it will only grow. So we have transformations that need to take place inside of us in order for us to see transformations in the lives of the people that we want to share the gospel with. See, the gospel is constantly moving us from faith to faith, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. We, 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 we come into faith, obviously, we come into the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through, through faith, but in order to continue to obey and follow Jesus Christ, it has to be out of faith. And so transformation has to occur in us, and there's two of them, I think, that need to happen. First of all, we need to be transformed in how we think about suffering. We think about it as bad. We think about it as a sign of failure. Um, we think about it as, a, as, as inescapable. Um, when we are, are approaching these efforts, because we know there's going to be some resistance, but we need to see that it is a means through which our joy will be maximized. Suffering that we endure for the sake of Jesus Christ is going to be suffering that increases our joy that we feel in our hearts and in our minds, okay? Now, I've never been inside of a jail cell as a prisoner. I've been inside of jails and we've got people in the church here that can tell you what it's like to be inside of jails as a prisoner. We drove by a jail in Mozambique last week. Oh, my goodness. I, I thought, you know, that is probably what jails were like in the first century. You would, there was a crowd of people. This was a, a two-story jail building. And in the second story, there was a large window with bars close together, and all I could see was about a dozen faces smashed up against that. And it was completely dark, and no glass over the windows. 
And you can just imagine what was going on inside of that room in terms of disease and darkness and not enough air. And I'm certain, would probably not meet any sort of building codes that they do have there in Mosin. It was, it was horrible looking. Would we, have been, would we be able to sit inside of a place like that and worship and pray sincerely to God, rejoicing, or would we, be, would we be complaining about our comfort? I would be complaining about my comfort. I guarantee you that. It would take, this would, this would have to be something that God really worked into me over a period of years and after many experiences of this, this kinds of discomfort. Something's got to be going wrong here. Why am I being inconvenienced? Why am I in such a dark, dank, disease-ridden place? Those would be all of my ideas. I got to get out of here. Paul believed that his suffering would lead to fruit and greater joy in his own life. You guys, that, that is the gospel. And if we're going to be faithful in evangelism, and we're going to see this, we're going to see this in chapter, chapter 2, in one of the songs that we see here that Paul integrates into his letter. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a compelling urging of Paul for us to look at Jesus and to imitate him. And it is through obedience with the outlook towards joy that he endured what he did and gave up being God to be a human. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, we will not be effective in our efforts to communicate the gospel to people. The second transformation that we've got to endure is that the love for God and for others must be more powerful than our fear of opposition. Do we care enough to enter into suffering, even at the hands of those we love? Do we love them? Do we care for them enough? To trend? Again, that's, that's, that's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only son. We need the gospel to speak the gospel. Our lives in the gospel, it, do we reflect? I mean, Paul says, I live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let your lives reflect the gospel. It also compels us to, to, to walk with Christ and enjoy him in such a way that just naturally pushes us to say, you know, I want these people, the ones that I love, the people at work, the people in my classrooms, the people in our neighborhoods, I, I want them to know the freedom and the joy of knowing and following Jesus Christ. That's got to be, that's got to be there. We have to really be loving and following Jesus in order to communicate in a sincere and real way, hey, this is what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. And so, what's the application? Well, obviously, we're trying to, as a, as a church, be one-minded with one spirit, with one mind for the progress of the gospel and to commit ourselves towards that unity that Paul speaks of and to be more bold in our speech. And so as we think about being more faithful witnesses, the application is that we need to draw from the deep well of the gospel in order to push us over the fear of opposition that we're going to have. And as Jesus said, as we give our life, as we commit to this suffering at the hands of those 
that we love, we will find it. We will find life. Let me pray.